We can go into your Bibles to uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 1. I was thankful for uh, Sean's message. And in many ways, I think it uh, fits in pretty well with uh, my message this morning. Also, I was actually thinking of First um, John uh, 3, verse 2. And here, here's uh, the Apostle John. I, I love it how he starts it off. It's, just, it's almost like he's just like completely captivated by this thought. And he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, that is Jesus, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. And everyone, so here's the key here. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Just as he is pure. So yes, the singleness of the Christian life, of just this thought, this gaze upon Christ, and having that gaze on Christ purifies us. Uh, Well, this morning, I want to gaze at the person of Christ, and just to give us a, a, a glimpse of who he is, uh, particularly the, the majesty and the supremacy of Christ. So Revelation chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, the, uh, the title of this message is The Majesty and Supremacy of Christ. First, we're going to walk through this passage in Revelation and with a focus on Christ's majesty and supremacy, along with some applications. And then we will follow with a few more applications that are particular to current events. In order to, under, excuse me, in order to understand a text, I think that it is helpful to place yourself in that person's shoes. We shouldn't just read over a text without considering the impact on the person. Understanding the person's feelings within the text can provide a greater understanding of the weight of the passage. This empathy, if you would call it, guided by the truth, can lead to worship and good practical lessons. So what do I mean? Well, let's just give an example, a few examples here. Think of the person Jeremiah. What, what was he called? Does he remember, remember what he was called? The weeping prophet. Okay, so why? I mean, if you just, if you just kind of read over the text of Jeremiah, you're, you're going to miss a lot of things. But, but why was he called the weeping prophet? Think of all the suffering of Jeremiah and how he labored over Judah. Yet all of his rebukes fell on deaf ears and even led to him being thrown into a pit of mud. How would you like that? In the end, he had to watch the people perish in front of his eyes. Think of the deep sorrow this caused Jeremiah. However, his life can teach us unmerited love and trust in the Lord. Parents can sympathize in measure with how difficult it is to watch your children go against instruction and cause themselves harm. You can understand in measure what he says in Lamentations three nineteen through 23. Remember my affliction and my wondering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. Surely, parents, you've felt this before. But what is he going to say? This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Think of Job, the words that he said while in pain. We have each felt some measure of pain and how difficult it can be to maintain a Godward mind in the midst of pain. We have each felt some measure of pain and how, and how difficult this can be. Placing yourself in Job's shoes can help you to understand his despair and then even rejoice in watching him repent. We learn that we need to be slow to rebuke someone in pain and lovingly support them in their trial. Think of Jairus. When his 12-year-old daughter died and, raised, and Christ raised her back again. You can read over that without impact, or you can imagine the pain and the heartache that Jairus went through. Here he won the attention of the Lord, 
and was rejoicing at the prospect of his daughter being healed. He was with Jesus as he made his way to heal his daughter, but what happened? The crowds pressed in, and there was a delay. Imagine the frustration of the surrounding situation. I would have yelled back to the crowd, back off. Don't you understand that my daughter is dying? And I need Jesus right now. Then immediately the report comes that your daughter had died. Where was the Lord? Why didn't he respond sooner or make this his priority? My daughter is dead. Why, God? But we know the story. Why didn't he respond sooner? Or excuse me. But the Lord comes in and says to not be afraid, and then goes and raises his daughter from death. Doesn't this lead you to worship Jesus? And to submit to his timing. The Lord's timing is perfect. Well, this is a kind of a long introduction. Um, so we need to proceed here with this text. Some of these images here in Revelation, they, they can be unclear as to the exact meaning. But it shouldn't stop us from trying to dig a little bit deeper. You never know what gems may be uncovered. So here we have the Apostle John say that on the Lord's day, he heard a voice behind him like the sound of a trumpet, telling him to write to the churches. Have you ever heard of a trumpet sound in your ear? <laughs> I played trumpet in, uh, in high school and college, and I, I heard often a uh, few people complaining in front of me <laughs> of how, lo- how loud it is. Um, this voice was loud and majestic, and all he could compare it to would be a trumpet. When John turns around to see the source of this sound, what does he see? See, here we have a majestic picture of the risen, glorified Christ. Let's place ourselves in John's shoes. Do you see his beauty and majesty? John had problems describing the glory before him. And so all that he can say is that this son of man is like these earthly, these earthly elements. See, John saw Jesus dressed as a commoner on earth and watched him lay his outer garment aside to wash his feet. John saw Jesus being humiliated at the hands of the Romans by stripping him and casting lots for his outer garments. Yet here is the risen Lord, dressed in a high priestly robe and adorned with a royal golden sash. Christ has overcome and is reigning supreme. His head and hair were like white wool, like snow. This description actually matches what Daniel says in Daniel 7.9, you can read that, um, about the ancient of days. As Colossians 1.17 says about Jesus, that he is before all things. Jesus was, or Jesus is, the ancient of days. And as Psalm 90 says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. His eyes were like flames of fire. John saw his eyes fade as he was dying on the cross, but these eyes warmed his soul like fire. These burning eyes are fixed on his children, watching over them, as our compassionate Lord. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had made to glow in a furnace. 
John saw his feet walking through the streets, saw his feet walking on the water, and saw his feet being raised up on the cross, but this was different. John heard Jesus' request to follow him, his voice in calming the sea, his voice in calling Lazarus out of the tomb, his voice in calling out, it is finished, but this was different, like the sound of many waters. John saw Jesus breaking bread with his hands, turning tables over with his hands, holding children with his hands, having nails pierced through his hands. But John never saw hands holding seven stars. Who knows what John initially thought with this sight. However, a short time later, Christ does explain that the stars are the angels of the church. The Greek word angels also means messengers, which I would take as being the leaders of the church. Since thereafter, in, in the next few chapters, Christ rebukes them uh, again in chapters 2 and 3. So Christ has the leadership of the church in his right hand. It doesn't say that the, the leadership of the churches are in both of his hands, but just what? Just his right hand. It's as if Christ is saying that I am in complete control of the church, and it is not too difficult of a thing as if I needed to hold it up with two hands. His voice was not just like the sound of many waters, but out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. Hebrews 4, 12-13 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul, of spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. His words are powerful, and the source of penetrating and piercing truth comes from him. John saw the face of Christ in a similar way on the Mount of Transfiguration. John had a taste of the glory of Christ when he was transfigured before their eyes, and his face shone like the sun. At that time, he was with two other, uh, two other apostles, and all three fell down in great fear. If we saw the glory of Christ, we likewise would be forced to bow down before his feet. Jesus is simply too hot to handle. We can't even handle looking at the sun 93 million miles away. Moreover, the one who created the sun. Hebrews 1.3 says, And he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of his, which is the Father's, glory, and the exact representation of his nature. The Son of Man was like the Jesus he knew, but also unlike him in many ways. This is the same man on whom John leaned upon in the upper room. John knew Jesus in his earthly ministry, but again, this Jesus was different. Jesus never lost his supremacy on earth, but it was veiled in the flesh. Once he died, the veil was removed and his body was glorified. 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44 says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. 
It has sown a natural body. It has raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Jesus was fully God before coming into the flesh, fully God in the flesh, and fully God after the resurrection. As Athanasius said at the Nicene Council in 325 AD, Jesus that I know as my Redeemer cannot be less than God. When John fully takes in the sight of Jesus, what happens? He is overcome and falls down at his feet like a dead man, just collapses before him because he was simply too much for John. John was utterly stripped of all bodily strength, overcome by the thought of what he just saw, emptied of all fleshly ability to even catch himself, no leg to stand on. There is no better place to collapse than at the foot of Christ, though. When you are emptied, you are able to be filled with instruction from the Lord. One may wonder if Jesus intended on humbling John to prepare him for the messages he was about to receive. When we are weak, he is strong. But don't miss this. What did the Son of Man do? He placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. Aren't we thankful that this one who is full of supreme power is full of affection? He sees John struggling with fear at what he is seeing, so he touches him. Our Lord is able to recognize and sympathize with the weaknesses of our flesh and is able to apply a gracious touch. He touches John with the same hand in which he is holding the churches. Jesus is able to not only take care of all the churches in the world, but you. Why shouldn't John be afraid? After all, can the person who tells us to not be afraid have any power or ability to protect us? But what does he say? He says, I am the first and the last. Who could say such a thing? He ties himself to verse 8, where it says that the Lord God is the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha means first, and Omega, Omega means last. It's kind of like the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. The Son of Man is saying that he is eternal, and he always has been and always will be. Aren't these comforting words from our Lord? He tells John to not be afraid because he is the I am. From eternity past and eternity future, I will be here. Who better to initiate this book of what will take place than he who is the first and the last? And what else does he say? He says that he is the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. The Son of Man says that I have life within myself. We are dependent upon many things for survival, food, air, water, a pumping heart. This one needs nothing in order to survive because he is the source 
of life because the source of life is within him. You will never be independent. Let me repeat that. You will never be independent. He is independent. He is life. But the amazing thing is, what else does he say? And I was dead. This everlasting one in whom holds all life, in whom is the source of life, died. What a contrast that the living one died. Behold, though, he is now alive forevermore, meaning he's not going to die again. Jesus is with us forever. Surely this struck a note with John's heart. His heart probably leaped with joy at the voice of his Savior, reminding John that he was the one who died and rose again. And what else does he say? And I have the keys of death and of Hades. I have keys to my car and my house, and I come and go as I wish. I have ownership of these objects, yet I still have to subject myself to the governing bodies in regards to these things. I'm reminded of this every year when I have to go pay my property taxes. This is not the case with Jesus. He has the keys to death because he is the first and the last. He rules over death. Death is subject to him. And he goes on and says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. As I already mentioned, Christ is in complete control of the church. And what happens to the church? In verse 13, it says that this son of man is walking in the middle of the lampstands. Dear church, Christ is in the middle of the church. He is not absent or standing aloof or standing far off. What takes place within the next two chapters is the Son of Man speaking to his churches. Listen to some of his statements. I mean, I, 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 you just have to stop and just kind of just think about it and, and just take it in. Like what Jesus is saying to these churches. And I'm, I'm going to try to emphasize his supremacy in these things. Chapter 2, 5, he threatens to remove the lampstand. 2, 7, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 2, 9, I know your tribulation. 2, 10, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. 2, 10, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. 2.16, he tells them to repent or else he was going to come to them quickly and make war against them with the sword of his mouth. 2.17, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. 2.21, speaking of Jezebel, he says that he gave her time to repent. 2.22, he 
will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who sin with her. 226, he who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give authority over the nations. 228, I will give him the morning star. 35, to him who overcomes, I will not erase his name from the book of life. 37, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. 3.8, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. 3.9, he said that he was going to make those of the synagogue of Satan to come and bow down at their feet and make them known that I have loved you. 3.10, I will keep you from the hour of testing. 3.16, I will spit you out of my mouth. 3.18, buy from me gold refined by fire. 3.19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. 3.21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Maybe that was a little much, but I thought that it was helpful just to, to kind of pull some of these things together. It's just amazing just to stop and to think about the person of Christ and, and what he says, the power that he holds. I hope, your heart that it, I hope that your heart is stirred on the supreme nature of Christ. Can you see this glorified Christ? There were a few applications already mentioned, <clears throat> but I would like to take this opportunity um, to share on the supremacy of Christ and apply it to two big issues facing our nation, in which uh, apparently we needed a double dose of this. Sean already mentioned <laughs> these two things, um, but it's good to go over it, though. Christ <clears throat> is supreme over the elections. <clears throat> No doubt there is a lot of stress in election years. <clears throat> However, we can trust in the wisdom and supremacy of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Excuse me. <coughs> Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. I was thinking just how amazing it is to think about <laughs> when, when did God orchestrate the most beautiful and glorious blessing to mankind. It was like during the peak of the ruthless Roman Empire. It's like God is, God is not held back by nations, by kings. What, what are they to him? Again, as it says, it's like they're like a drop in the bucket to him. They're, they can't stand against him. Daniel 2.21 says, It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. Jesus will remain the supreme ruler regardless of who is elected this coming week. So we can take comfort in that. However, I do, I do want to mention something else, though. As a side, the supremacy of Christ does not take away from the Christian's role in voting for our rulers. We do have a rare opportunity and should make the most of it by being salt and light in the world. Out of a motivation of loving our neighbors, we can vote for rulers 
who will best align their policies with biblical principles. So again, just because Christ reigns supreme, it does not take away from our responsibilities of, you know, we have this opportunity to vote, but also what does the Bible tell us to do? Pray, right? We are commanded to pray for our rulers and authorities. So we can't just sit back and watch Christ reigning supreme. We, we do have actions also. And the other thing was that Christ is supreme over COVID or sicknesses. We know that when sin came, death came into the world, COVID came as a result of the fall. Can you trust Jesus with a potential threat of catching a disease? Can you trust Jesus if it results in getting deathly sick? Can you entrust your death into his hands? As Christians, we do not have to fear death, since Christ is holding the keys of death. And not just that, but he has also given us a hope of eternal life. Remember, what, what does Paul say a few different times about this hope of life? Right? He calls it our helmet of salvation, something that we are supposed to put on. As Christians, we have a hope. We have a hope in our risen Savior. Even if we are to die, Christ reigns supreme. Remember, he sees your trials and tells us, just as he came to John, touching him on his shoulder, knowing what John needed at that time, and what does he say? Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Well, amen. Why don't we go ahead and pray here? Father, again, we come and we thank you that Christ is reigning supreme on, on, on high at the right hand of God the Father. We thank you that, that you are concerned for our needs. Lord, we are thankful, Lord, that as it says, that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Lord, we are thankful, Lord, that our sovereign Lord is, has his eyes upon us. Lord, we do ask that you would help us. Lord, help us to um, entrust these things to you. Lord, help us, again, as, as Sean was encouraging us, to, to fix our eyes upon you, to fix our eyes upon Christ. Um, to not lose heart, to not forget, and even just as um, uh, there in Revelation 2 and in, in, in what Christ rebukes uh, there, the church in Ephesus, of saying that you've lost your first love. Lord, help us not to forget and to lose our first love. Help us to have Christ at the center point of our hearts and of our minds. Amen.